Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote to cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Hello, Job Shop enthusiasts. Jay Jacobs here, back for another episode of the Job Shop Show. This show will be a little different than some of the others. We usually talk about shops and some flavor of their specific capabilities. We'll do that today, too, but our guest has a different viewpoint of the industry. Joel Niekamp, the owner of Wesco Machine. Joel purchased Wesco not too long ago after a career in private equity and investment banking with a specialty in mergers and acquisitions. Many job shop owners are reaching the point where they're looking to exit their business, and this is a great opportunity to get the perspective of someone on the other side who actually pulled the trigger and bought a shop. It wasn't just a tire kicker. So welcome, Joe. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate the uh, invite here and, and look forward to the conversation. Yeah. I wanted to start off, Joel, we often hear the term private equity. What is it and how does it differentiate from investment banking and venture capital? Yeah, the I'd say short story, investment banking is more like a real estate agent, but for businesses. So they can go out and provide all sorts of services for companies, whether it's capital raising, assisting them with mergers or acquisitions, and that they're buying, assisting their client to buy companies or, or sell a company. The private equity side of the the operation is uh, an investment firm that is going out and acquiring businesses. So they're working with investment banks to get deal flow to see uh, potential businesses in the market, what may be coming to market or helping them source deals. But the, the private equity side of the house is actually the group that's putting money into the operations to acquire a business and run it longer term. Venture capital would be more startup. Uh, growth funding of a business, private equity uh, from the buyout side comes in more with owners that are looking to uh, realize either succession plan or just bring in another partner to help in terms of growing, scaling the firm or providing additional resources. You spent about 11 years in the industry. What did you do in your different roles? Yeah, the first five or so years on the investment banking side were really the transaction advisory assistance uh, working with a bunch of companies on the industrial side of uh, the spectrum in terms of capital raising, as I mentioned before, or assisting on sell-side processes where we were working with the owners, the management teams of companies that were looking to find a, a private equity investor or maybe even sell to a strategic partner, uh, advising them through the process in terms of here's what to expect from the start, uh, mm-hmm. here's what to expect in terms of timing, and here are some of the, the things that we need to take care of before we actually take you to market. Uh, so those first five years are really much more transaction focused, much more working with clients that were either looking to raise money or sell. Uh, and then after that made the transition in the private equity side of the house where it's, again, you're sitting on the opposite side of the table looking at a, a bunch of other companies or in my case, funds that are investing in companies and really making that decision that this is where we're going to put our money. Uh, we're willing to spend time, sweat. Uh, and, and really trying to generate a return for our investors by buying this company and holding it longer term. Uh, and then from there, I actually transitioned uh, a little bit out of the private equity space, but related into uh, an industrial holding company in the mechanical services space here in Chicago, working with a 86-year-old family-run mechanical services firm running their merger and acquisition program. So we started looking at a bunch of HVAC firms on the commercial side throughout the United States, but mainly in the Midwest, and trying to find those that would fit within that family-run holding company landscape. So it was a, a nice transition, and uh, that's kind of what got me started on the path of 
going out and, and finding something on my own here. Interesting. In Before you acquired Wesco, how many different companies did you actually look at their financials, get to peek under the hood? Yeah, on the machine shop slash fabrication shop side or metal fab side. Well, uh, just, in, just in general. Yeah, in general, uh, across the board, there have been hundreds, um, especially from the acquisition side. Uh, I think within a couple-year period, we had looked at two or 300 deals at the, the family-run holding company and spent time uh, in getting financials, really working through things on maybe 50 or 60. And a lot of that was because they were assisted with a, a business broker or an investment bank. So they had materials prepared okay. and took individual meetings with uh, probably 30 to 40 of those. And, and ultimately, we completed six transactions in that role. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, in the whole course of my career, there's been easily hundreds, if not over a thousand companies where we've looked at financial statements, met with management teams, or at least had some sort of cursory review with management teams and owners and getting to know the businesses, how they've operated them and, and their skill sets or what they're even looking for in terms of a partner in their next step. So you really do have an understanding of the financial aspects of not only a job shop, but industrial companies in general and probably beyond that so yeah and it's been that was one of the things that i looked to get early in my career is just a broad expanse of exposure to industries to companies to firms to uh, funds just to really broaden that spectrum from the beginning and that's allowed me to focus in hyper focus now on on the wesco acquisition here great and what was your undergraduate college degree Undergrad degrees were in finance and uh, a field that was called decision sciences, which is more like statistics, but for the business side of the house. Um, and really, uh, when I went to college, it was more with interest was in finance in general. Uh, but my dad co-founded a, a metal fabrication slash weld shop in Ohio. So I'd spent a lot of my early years growing up in there, working there summers, weekends, uh, mm-hmm. as much as I could. Um, and knew that was an option, but really wanted to, to get into the corporate finance side because I was uh, I love numbers, love math, and and love kind of the transactional dynamic of that. But uh, after 10, 11 years or so, decided the, the metals and, and industrial space was more where I want to stay longer term. So you mentioned that you worked in your father's shop. What type of shop did your dad have? Yeah, they primarily are a larger production firm that focuses on the automotive and steel service industries. So they'll make holding racks uh, for a variety of components for those spaces. They get in raw stock, bar, sheet, tube, uh, and then cut it, bend it, punch it, notch it, uh, weld it up, assemble it, and ship it out. And it could be anything from holding a series of alternators for Honda to truck cabs for Navistar to steel coils for uh, some of the big steel service industries. So it was. It uh, sounds like big stuff. Yeah, yeah, bigger stuff. Uh, and, and it was fun to be around as a, a little kid because you see the steel trucks coming in and you see yeah. a, a finished product going in. And then actually starting to work in there, you have a, a much greater appreciation for the true work that gets done from one truck to the next truck. It's not just snap your fingers and voila, you've got a finished product. And did you actually work out in the shop? Yeah, I, I did. I was able, uh, I ran the saws, ran the shears, punches, notches, uh, brakes, assembled things, tried to weld for about a week, and, and they kicked me out of that, that spot and said I was better served somewhere else. But uh, basically, the only thing I didn't do is run the paint booth, and that was just as fine with me, too. Sure. Before we get into some of the other stuff, let's just talk about your perspective on welding and welding is definitely more art than science. Yeah. What's the difference between MIG and TIG and arc welding and some of the different things that happened at the shop? Yeah. For for my dad's shop, they were primarily MIG welders. So just basic carbon steels, uh, but they could be some really thick plate down to very thin walled tube. Uh, did have some TIG welding that would come in for some of the aluminums and stainlesses of the sort. Uh, very little arc welding there. Uh, but yeah, it was one of those things where you know, most of the guys on the production side are welders and production welders. And I just made the assumption that 
you know, I can easily program a, a shear, set the stops, run it. Same thing with the saw and what the heck, I'll get somebody to set up a welder and I'll, I'll run and help out on that side too. So yeah, within the, the first days you get it set up and I just assume that it's easy as pulling the trigger and dragging it across the <laughs> tube or, you know, following it down. And you find out after you burn a huge hole in right away that, all right, you're running a little hot or everybody's, uh, you know, everybody's preferences when they're welding are different too. So it, just because one guy runs it one way, doesn't mean that the next guy's going to run the exact same job the next way. So it, it took me a while to figure out exactly uh, voltages, feed rates on the, the wire and, and my tendencies and also the importance of having a steady hand and, you know, weaving back and forth. And uh, yeah, it was, as you said, much more art than science. It wasn't as easy as pushing a pedal or pushing a button or, uh, yeah, assuming it's all going to turn out well, <laughs> pulling a trigger. At Rapid, we had a sheet metal mechanic, and a sheet metal mechanic is somebody who can essentially do anything in the shop, go from start to finish, make a complete sheet metal part or assembly by themselves. And this fellow had a couple soda cans that he welded end-to-end, and I would show customers those cans until he finally took me aside and he said, Jay, just because I can do this doesn't mean that I want to do it. <laughs> so don't, don't be promoting this capability, please. <laughs> uh, and not only that, but it's uh, yeah, understanding the time and delicacy of doing something like that too, where it's not just, uh, you know, it's not as easy as welding two steel plates together. Either. There's a lot more sensitivity associated with something like that as well right well he didn't show me all the cans that he'd put holes in <laughs> to, get, to get that perfect specimen so what would you tell a designer that they should really know about welding before putting a welding requirement on a printer model uh, i would say welding or even absent that make sure that they're liaising with either somebody that's familiar with welding in their shop or with a supplier to understand you know, what's being asked. Uh, last week we got a couple RFQs in and it was just a uh, steel pipe claiming it was welded to another one, but there are no call outs in terms of, uh, you know, weld length. Was it spot welded? Was it continuous weld? Uh, mm-hmm. How deep did they want the burn? Uh, you know, what size of a bead? Uh, was there any uh, inspection needed done on it? So there are a lot of call what, what is a bead? Uh, the bead would be basically the wire that's feeding into and melting the one piece of metal to another piece of metal. So uh, sometimes you can have a thin bead if it's just a, a non-serious structural item to there are other times where you need a, a really thick bead on a, a thicker place, a thicker plate of steel or tube just to make sure that you're really adhering and welding those two items together. Um, and I think there are times where people don't understand that thicker plate takes longer to weld or mm-hmm. they don't understand the importance of making sure that uh, there's warp that can occur in terms of a material flatness uh, with a longer weld. Most of our accounts at this point are pretty good at it, but you know, some of the stuff we saw come in last week from a, a new potential account, uh, it was interesting. There were no call-outs, no uh, you know, flatness tolerances or anything of that nature associated with the weld that was to be done on that part. So it's always good as a designer if you're not sure exactly what to specify to talk to one of your shops and have that conversation yeah yeah very much so because it it can make a difference in terms of how you actually approach a part too uh we had another quote come in or a rfq back in february where the customer wanted two items welded together when it could have been machined from a solid bar and Mm. his assumption was at that time that it'd be more structurally sound if it were two welded pieces as opposed to being machined out of one solid bar and and we went back to him and said based on the thinness of the wall here you may actually have uh, a greater chance for breakage or for some issues of blowout versus if we can machine it out of a solid bar uh, we think that will be more structurally sound so it was kind of an interesting conversation back and forth with him as well because it wasn't a part that he was familiar with it was his first time purchasing that part for his operation um, and it was kind of nice just to have that conversation, let him know that we weren't just going to accept the drawing that came across. We wanted to make sure that we understood it, that he understood our perspective. Mm-hmm. And now we were being more of a, a value add partner too. 
you gained a lot of experience then as you grew up in your father's shop, went off and got a finance degree, had success in the financial world. And then what was the catalyst that really pulled the trigger where you said, I want to own my own shop? It was really working at that family holding company and starting to see and work with a lot of the smaller mechanical services firms and understand some of the delicacy of the operations. Um, but similarly, in the trades here on the machining and, and metal fab side, uh, the same thing plays on the mechanical services side where there's just not a lot of my generation that's coming in. Yet there are a lot of owners at this point in time that are looking for that succession plan or that are maybe forced into it sooner than later. And uh, yeah, just uh, having that natural inherent interest from working in my dad's shop to seeing other smaller operations on the mechanical services side really, really started to get the itch going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started looking at a, a couple here or there and realized for me that you know, there's a certain size that I was comfortable with taking down on my own. Uh, and there are also certain aspects of the operation that I wanted to make sure were in place before just blindly going out and, and purchasing an operation. Um, but it was really just wanting to get in, get my feet wet, get some experience under my belt. And, and candidly, I figure there's no better time than this point in my career because I can work hard. And if it works out, great. But if for some unfortunate reason that it, it doesn't work out in the next couple of years, I still have plenty of plenty of good earning years left in me to, to make it back on the opposite side. But that's not gotcha. the, the plan I'm going down or the path I'm going down. Was this or is this your first entrepreneurial effort or did you start other businesses maybe in high school or college? First one, first one. So it's been, uh, again, I think it was helpful um, on the mechanical services side, seeing how some of these small businesses really operate, how they go through ownership transitions, what sort of structure is there, what needs to be there for them to grow over time that got me more comfortable. I think if I wouldn't have had that experience, I probably wouldn't have made the jump, but really spending a lot of time on getting no owners, getting to uh, assist them through the diligence acquisition process, and then assist them on the integration process and see how we uh, augmented what they had in place or, or supplemented where they had a need. That really gave me a lot more confidence in stepping in and kind of taking the reins and, and giving it a go. I think the integration is really key, and I want to make sure we hit on that later on. When you made that decision to say, I'm going to go out and buy a shop, did you write up a business plan? Not really. I had it in the back of my head, but it was more instead of me actively searching out opportunities, cold calling a bunch of machine shops, I was really looking at what was coming into the open market because I knew I would have a better chance at a successive transaction successful transaction if I knew that an owner was really looking to sell versus having to court them over a longer period of time. But the that funnel really honed in the more that I started to look at different firms, different operations. So I think inherently I had that idea, that bigger kind of 30,000 foot picture uh, mm-hmm. in my head at the start, but it really started to narrow down as I, I kicked the tires on a, a handful of operations. So you had the funnel coming in and you, without having to pull the trigger and probably no sense of urgency, were able to check out shops that you thought fit your criteria. But as you started to look at them, what criteria did you decide were most important to you and how did you weight them? Yeah, for me, a couple of the key items were uh, making sure that the operations were not too heavily dependent on the owner uh, and that if the owner stepped away you know, month one, month three, or, or even sooner, that the customers weren't going to grow concerned or that the machinists in the shop weren't going to be overly concerned. Um, so really getting a, a feel that they had transitioned the operations management and some of the customer relationships either to the company as a whole and the company was known or it was transitioned into the shop. Um, making sure that 
there was some sort of a, a stable financial base there and an, a financial acumen of the owner so that when I was getting the diligence information, I felt good about what was coming forth as opposed to just getting, uh, uh, here's our corporate tax returns for the last few years. And oh, by the way, we can't really explain what half the numbers are here. Uh, <laughs> that one, uh, there was one like that that gave me a little bit of concern. And, and uh, based on some questions, went, he went back to his accountant and learned a few things about his business as well. But uh, yeah, so a good financial understanding um, and then really looking at the end markets on the companies and what they serve. My my familiarity or what I was more comfortable with is more this job shop environment, despite the peaks and valleys. I felt that my network and connections could help smooth that out versus stepping into a, a high production, kind of thinner margin, a lot more competitive right out of the gate. I felt less comfortable on, on some of those items too. Um, so circling back to the owner, how did you determine that the owner had transitioned the relationship with the customers and the relationship with the team members to the shop and it didn't just stay all with them? Yeah, the I'll start with the perfect scenario, which was this case right here. Uh, in West Coast instance, the owner had actually moved to Utah. So we're located uh, southwest Chicago near Joliet, but mm-hmm. the owner had actually moved to Utah 10 years prior. Uh, come in a week or two a year would still manage things from afar but it's more so just handling invoicing uh, confirming purchase orders things of that nature but he was not actively involved in the business on a day-to-day basis which for me that was an easy one where it gave me confidence that those guys weren't used to seeing him the customers weren't used to seeing him Um, and it gave me confidence that the team here was pretty good at running the business on a daily basis so anything that I could do on day one would be additive or supportive to what they were doing so that one made it easy. Uh, and then on the flip side, another one that I looked at, um, another smaller shop, two to three machinists plus the owner, but he was in the shop 30 hours a week working, doing things, not really being able to, to go out and sell on a consistent basis. But uh, in the conversations, he would just note that he had the relationships that uh, you know, he would work with me to make sure they were transitioned, but they knew him, they came to him. He was in there as much as he could, uh, working with them, helping them design things. And I knew right out of the gate that wasn't going to be the type of operation that I could step into. I'm not an engineer. Uh, and I'm candidly can't draw in CAD at this point, something that I'm going to start picking up here. But I couldn't be that type of person day one. My, my skill set is more on that business development, networking, uh, financial operations management, less so machining, designing, things of that nature. And, and that's really what I looked to get to know from the operations was that the owner that would fit me and the business that I was looking for is much more the situation that I acquired as opposed to the guy that's in there turning the tools and, and designing everything and, and being the sole person that's interacting with the customers. We see that a lot with the, the shops that we're interfacing with and the owner is intimately involved with the business to the point where they often can't, at least in their own mind, afford a week of vacation away from the shop. The shop will either not run or things will blow up. So the owner is just such a critical piece. They, What would you say to an owner who's in a situation like that, but is thinking of exiting within the next five years. Yeah, it's a, a tough one to have because you know, a lot of owners of that nature look at their business as effectively another child or uh, their only child in some sort. So it's a tough, tough item to grasp, but you really have to start working on transitioning either the relationships or some of the operations to your team, whether it's, you know, you may have a clearly defined uh, a key man or key woman in the operation, or you may not, but really to make a transition smooth and and to help generate a little bit more value and open up the prospects for the business on a succession plan, you have to start working on that succession plan sooner than later. And that is one, identifying somebody else to to start transitioning either the engineering or the sales or the operations management too, but also just transitioning some of the general business knowledge because uh, we always talked about the proverbial bus where if the owner went and got hit by a bus the next day on <laughs> you know, the situations you're talking about, if the operation is 
is at a standstill. You can't have that. Uh, and I think that's also, you know, it should be an introspective conversation because similarly, if these businesses and the shares or the ownership would transition onto uh, a wife or a husband or son or a daughter, it's equally going to put them in a precarious position if something like that were to happen. So I think even absent just a pure transaction, uh, just the general health risk and, and things of that nature too, where you want to make sure that whoever is going to be uh, the next owner of the business and the operations, they're set up to succeed as opposed to behind the eight ball having a lot more work to do from day one uh, because it does impact the value of the business and, and what you may get for a longer term. Totally agree with you there. The financial knowledge you touched upon the owner who gave you some tax returns and you asked questions which he didn't know the answers to. What would you say to those owners? How do they how do you think they can get some financial knowledge of their business or what are the things that they really should know whether they're looking to sell the business or not that they may not know. Yeah. And we saw this even a couple of times in the, the mechanical services operation where owners would just simply take receipts or take invoices or purchase orders and put them in a box and mail them off their accountant and just assume <laughs> what the accountant had was correct and, and never ask questions. So yeah, in this case, the gentleman was telling me that his rent was X, but then I see the tax return for the most recent year and that was three X the number. And it's like, wait, you're telling me that your rent was this and your tax return is saying this. Why is that the case? Like, oh, you know, my account just added it up times three. Well, that shouldn't be the case. <laughs> you should have a, a cash transaction of knowing what you paid yourself in rent as well. Um, so yeah, it went back and, and it's just, you know, even like looking at a, a quote or, or something that comes in from a business perspective, if something looks odd or, or awkward or out of line, you know, don't be afraid to probe because, um, when a buyer comes in, you know, the questions that I asked were how consistent is the revenue? Uh, what does your customer base look like? Um, you know, just even basic items like revenue profitability, you know, your gross margin, uh, just to give me an idea as to where I was at on, on certain things. Or uh, if an expense category comes up, understanding what the big expense categories are. So if there's an expense that's labeled other, but it makes up 40% of the annual expenses for the firm, uh, hopefully you, you understand what's in there or can it at right. least explain it. So I don't think anybody has to get, you know, in depth to understand every little expense, but just the high level items, what's driving your revenue, uh, how seasonal is it, um, you know, rough gross margin across the board. Uh, and then what are you looking to drive at from a profitability perspective? And, and can you answer some of the questions that may come up if you do see a, a number that looks out of line on an annual basis or on a tax return, or um, you know, if you were to put the numbers out to even another accounting firm, the questions that they may ask. Um, so I don't think it's a, uh, an arduous task, but it's something that it's worth asking questions, spending more time with your accountant or your internal uh, controller or internal um, CPA, CFO, whoever's there to, to make sure that you're understanding the rough parameters of the business. That makes a lot of sense. In terms of customer concentration, did you have any rules of thumb that would just rule out a company if they had, say, one customer who was over 50% or I, I'm making that number up, but what, or three customers who were 80% of the business. What, how did you look at that? Yeah, that was, uh, that was an evolving one because originally that was the case where I didn't want, you know, three to four customers to be more than 75% of the business. And, and then I, I looked at this operation. I saw that three customers are about 80% of the business to 90% of the business in a given year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a, a question that the seller and his broker had anticipated on receiving throughout the process. And they were very, very well prepared and, and pulling data back to 2007 that showed the consistency of those three accounts. Um, and the relationships go back 20 to 30 plus years. So that gave me a little bit more confidence as opposed to seeing you know, a spike in a valley from any one account, uh, seeing the continuity and things of that nature. But uh, know that risk presents itself and mm-hmm. made sure relatively quickly that I went out to the largest customer we have here and, and showed my face within the first couple of weeks on a delivery and, and kind of let them know what had happened and that they're still going to be seeing the same guys, still the same name. The only mm-hmm. thing that we're looking to do is grow the business longer term, but 
it's now in a safe pair of hands for another 30 years, as opposed to, you know, they're starting to get concerned as to what happens when they transition ownership, what happens if the shop goes away. So, right. you know, it's some, what I initially perceived too is, as uh, it could be a weakness when a sale transaction occurs within a business it can also be a case to go out and really get to know the customers better. And my instance specifically where, again, I intend this, for this to be a, a very long-term hold, they now know that they've got a, a younger gentleman here that's going to spend time growing the operations, get to know them, and really keep things going for them longer term. So I've been pleased to find that it's been received much better than I expected than not. Uh, but it's one of the issues that I want to attack day one. And I've been hitting the, the sales path pretty hard, just trying to bring in some new accounts to help diversify away some of that risk if something does happen to one, two, or, or all three of those accounts. Sure. When you went out, how many companies did you look at before you purchased Wesco? Me personally, I got books, uh, so kind of offering presentations or at least some summary write-ups on eight companies. Mm-hmm. I visited with uh, only two, Wesco and, and uh, another one, but at least had calls with the other eight. And, and you can tell pretty quickly from a half hour to an hour long call, just the, the way that a business is run, either in a, a consistent professional manner versus more of a, a hobby business versus uh, just somebody that's kind of testing the market and really trying to see what they can get for the operation as opposed to having put the, the thought into the succession planning. Um, so yeah, I really met with two. And like I said, there are a lot of, a lot of boxes that checked pretty quickly in this situation that got me comfortable that this was going to be a, a good home for me and a good home for the guys and a, a good transition for that, the past owner. So it sounds like it was almost that there were, there were hard things you were looking at, but it was almost more of an intuitive feel for the two shops that you looked at yeah. after the conversation. Yeah, and I think it also goes back to one of the points you made earlier, Jay, where you know, I didn't have a definitive timeline as to I had to have something done at this point. So I mm-hmm. casually been looking at operations of this size for that three-year period, uh, but really getting that me and wanting to do it for me the last year or so. So I'd seen enough operations to also help with that filter and, and help uh, pinpointing what it was that I wanted and knowing after looking at uh, enough of them, yeah, which one fit, which one didn't. Um, and like I said, just the, yeah, the conversations with the team on, on Wesco when they're looking to sell versus conversations with the other gentleman who's going alone versus having anybody supporting him in that transaction uh, it just showed itself and made the process much smoother. And I, the whole process start to finish here from the time the LOI was in until the deal was closed. Uh, so I actually submitted an offer in May. It was outbid. That deal fell apart uh, due to financing. But from the time I submitted my second offer till closure was about three months, which is actually pretty quick for something. Of that is, price. yeah. Uh, whereas the other one probably would have taken six to nine months easily just in terms of the back and forth, the pace of uh, the initial conversations and, and the comfort, comfortability I had in the financials. So just for our audience, LOI stands for letter of intent, which is yeah. not a final offer, but a letter that says, I'm serious about wanting to acquire your business. Here's the basic terms and it gets you to the table to really negotiate the final details. Is that a Good way of saying that. Yeah, that's correct. And and in my case, I tried to be. Uh, I was probably more verbose than not, but I also wanted to get out all the key points that I wanted to have negotiated from the outset, mm-hmm. have preliminarily preliminarily agreed to, as opposed to here's price, here are the basic deal terms, uh, and that's it. I wanted to make sure that we had conversations up front around. Uh, real estate around customer transitions around uh, getting comfortability with the employees remaining um, you know spelling out a bunch of terms there so that we could have some of those conversations up front and therefore once it was agreed to it was really more down to documentation as opposed to a bunch more negotiating from that point I think that's something that that potential sellers should be aware of too is that there there are multiple buyers out there there are some that will come with all right here's the price that I'm going to pay mm-hmm. let's get going 
and then somebody like me that here a price, here's terms, structure, uh, you know, proposed uh, tax treatments, purchase price allocations, things of that nature. So that it's, I just found it was much easier to bullet point out those items versus having multiple conversations down the line as, oh, this item came up and this item came up and maybe this is going to reduce price and so on and so forth. You said that there were two companies you were interested in were willing to pursue, but one had help, the other one didn't. When you say they had help, does that mean that one had a broker and the other one did not? Or yes. did all yep. the companies? And what would you just say about the re, having a broker involved in the sale versus not? The A broker in the process or an investment bank in a process you – know, I think generally is looked upon by some as, oh, it's just another fee that I'm going to incur. But they actually do add value to the whole process because they can go out. Uh, they have a more, uh, a broader network of interested buyers, one that knows them, can help getting your deal, your company out to a bigger market quickly. They can also help you in terms of preparing the financials, preparing uh, answers to certain questions that they know are commonly asked or uh, getting you to think about terms that may come up throughout a, a deal and a transaction. Because uh, there are a lot of nuanced terms and, and points that have to get discussed throughout a deal. And I think it's just easier for a potential seller to know those in advance of a process as opposed to, again, incrementally along having to think through something because it can generate a lot of deal fatigue for somebody that's not experienced in going it alone. You know, they think it's just another way for a buyer to nickel and dime or to extend something as opposed to it being a, a legitimate item that needs to be addressed before a, a transaction can close or uh, even just to make the whole integration and transition process much smoother. Um, so brokers and advisors do bring value in, in that they can speed up a process, they can make the process more efficient, they can also help you receive better value for the operation just because of their network and and how um, their, their familiarity with the whole transaction flows. And, and again, that's where I liken it to a real estate agent. There are mm-hmm. ways you can sell your house. You do for sale by owner, or you could go out and hire a real estate agent. And I think, kindly speaking, it's more important for a business sale than it is for uh, selling your house. So it's well worth hiring somebody that, that is an advisor and experienced in the space. So the second business that you didn't buy, they were probably handicapped by not having a advisor or broker on their team because for you, you knew it was going to be a longer drawn out process. Yeah. Longer drawn out process. And candidly, I had less comfort around an offer that I would submit Mm. because I didn't know, I didn't have the confidence in their financial records or in the information that I had received, even through the conversations. Uh, There's a lot more at face acceptance versus here where there was data that was proven out uh, some of the comments that were made or at least showed through in the historical operations of the business. One of the things that we did at Rapid, we made an acquisition and we identified a machine shop to acquire. But I brought in a third-party broker and was willing to pay the fee myself because for me, I knew that the shop is, like you said, almost a child to the owner. And I wanted to make sure I had a really good relationship with him after the acquisition, particularly because he was going to stay on. So I wanted to make sure if there were any points that might get contentious, that we had that neutral third party to buffer, almost like a marriage (laughs) counselor. Yeah, And it worked. We had a super relationship, but there were some points that had to be pointed out along the way on both sides where it might have been difficult to have that conversation one-on-one. So I'm a big fan of having a neutral third party, whether you want to call them an investment bank or a broker or advisor, but somebody who doesn't have really uh, – perhaps they're serving the the seller, but they're really – they're trying to do the best for both parties. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because that, uh, that mechanical services firm, that was part of the role that I would play in certain transactions where I was you know, our quote unquote M&A guy and working with a mm-hmm. broker, yet the owners could still have those candid heart to heart conversations because that's where it mattered most in the transaction. But for the, you know, the detailed nuanced stuff where it would get contentious, I could have those conversations with the broker and then they could opine as to what was commercially reasonable back to the seller too. So yeah, even just having that perspective of commercial reasonableness on points helps the whole process. I'm not sure if you're comfortable talking about this or not, but the financial details, did you get a bank loan? Did the seller take a note back? Was there a certain way that you l- looked at approaching it initially and then that was something that there was some give and take or how how did all the, because ultimately it comes down to money changing hands. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, uh, I'll, I'll give the, or cut straight to the chase. So I have an SBA loan. Uh, the operation was kind of pre-approved. Uh, the broker went out and helped the business mm. get pre-approved through the SBA. So that made the process easier as well. Yep. And again, the broker did that on his initiative because he knew that it helped the process. So, uh, the SBA had already, or Wells Fargo had already pre-approved a deal through the SBA uh, and it's pretty favorable terms, 10 years fixed note. Uh, so that made it a little bit easier for me from the outset in terms of knowing that it wasn't going to be a, a three or five year kind of commercial loan that I had 10 years. Right. Um, and then I actually used a, a unique structure uh, called a Rob's transaction for the equity downstroke where I'm able to, to use some funds that I had set aside in my 401k basically as the equity. Uh, wow. And that's kind of my long-term retirement vehicle now, as opposed to having to completely drain checking accounts and liquid investments uh, you know, that were readily accessible. There's a way to, to do it through the IRS. as a little bit more administrative complication, but kind of a, a nice long-term investment vehicle for me where I figured if anybody's going to, to have confidence in growing their own retirement. It's myself and, and me driving the business here. But yeah, the SBA loan is the, the primary component of the capital. Uh, no seller financing in this case. And okay. it was unusual because, and that was one of the, the items that I used to help me in negotiating the transaction values that I was coming cash at close. So the seller's willing to accept a little bit less to have all cash at close effectively mm-hmm. versus having a deal spread out over five years or versus him having to take uh, 10 or 20% seller financing or things of that nature. So and that's all, all part of the conversation, the transactional dynamics, as you alluded to, that owners need to consider when they're, when they're moving forward. Um, yeah, from my perspective, it's uh, SBA loan, uh, a Rob's transaction, and cash at close. Great. So you came to an agreement with the owner, and you closed on the business and now it was time to integrate i'll use that word yeah what did you do to prepare before the closing and then maybe you could just share some of the things that were important in the first perhaps month or two after you closed on the business yeah and for me uh, again the, the nature of the transaction was an asset sale um so i had set up a separate holding company from day one uh got my basic QuickBooks in order, bank accounts set up, everything of that nature. So that at the close of business, uh, I was really just transitioning assets onto my new balance sheet and and then working. Uh, the owner stayed around for a, a week where we spent basically every hour that we were together going through uh, basic operational items in terms of here's uh, how you handle invoicing with this customer here, are certain things to know with the uh, E2 shop management system. Uh, here are some unique nuances in terms of handling this relationship or that relationship. Um, but again, it was made relatively easy in this situation by him not being in the business on a consistent basis. So he already had kind of a de facto outsourced cheat sheet of here's what I do for four hours a week that gets payroll done, oh. invoicing done, purchase orders done. And I was able to pass that along. Here are the list of key suppliers uh, from an operations standpoint. But then the I would say the first month, uh, and even through now, but really the first month was spent a lot more with the operations manager and, and really getting a feel for the operations, for the quoting process, for the workflow, for shop flow, for um, you know, the skill set of each of the guys and understanding what fits well, what works well, 
uh, understanding his past sales processes and what he had done to generate new business. And also equally as much him getting to know me and, and my kind of management style and, mm-hmm. and the skill sets that I bring to the table because they are different from his. And we built a, a really nice relationship so far. And, and I, I would say the integration has been more on that front where I'm spending a lot more time now learning the true machining trade and taking a lot of the administrative tasks off his plate, quoting, uh, purchasing, uh, business development, you know, administrative items that he no longer has to do. So he can spend a lot more time on the shop uh, assisting with the quoting process, but but actually out being more productive instead of having to do those administrative things. So, yeah, the again, the integration was a little bit smoother here just because the owner was hands-off and had that strict regimen of what he was doing. Um, and it was also aided by my having gone through six transactions of a similar size sure. and knowing the right questions to ask and, and knowing the right items to put in place, and knowing that it doesn't, you know, we used to always call it the snap of the chalk line. When the sale closes, you snap the chalk line and operations mm-hmm. change, but there's still a lot of things that have to get cleaned up from the past owner in terms of uh, either receivables coming in or payments that they may make that have to be reimbursed. So just, making him aware as well that these are the things that will continue to, to be out there that you'll want to be cognizant of. I'll help you watch. I'll be collect. And, and, um, no, candidly, I just ask that you do the same for me that I want to be able to pick your brain for another couple months and, mm-hmm. and, uh, call you up with questions and we'll see what we can do here. But yeah, it was, it's been a, a really smooth transition process. Thankfully. Were the team members, aware from the get-go that the owner was looking to sell the business or at what point did they become aware of this? They knew that something was up around September of last year. So the deal closed in January, uh, 2019. They actually took it to market February of 2018. Uh, but I think around September, they started to get a sense that something was up because uh, things started getting cleared out of the shop. Things are getting rearranged and moved and, uh, and the past owner had actually sold a separate machine shop. So he started one, sold that back in 86 and then started this one back in 96 and mm-hmm. brought them along. So the, the key man had been with them through that transition and I think got a sense that something was up, but yeah, they, they didn't really know until two days after the sale had closed that it had officially gone through and that there was a new owner. And, and it was kind of interesting because I've gone through a few of those processes and, you know, coach the former owner a little bit as to, you know, I'll give you 15, 20 minutes with the guys. You can explain uh, that you're looking to retire transition and wanted to make sure that it was uh, the guys stayed and, and not much was going to change. And he's like, nah, we're just going to go out and tell them right now. So <laughs> <laughs> a little, little different than what I was expecting. And you could see some of the, the shock pretty quickly on two of the guys faces, but it was also a really good conversation right away because he then came back into the office. And he's like, yeah, I'll let you spend the time that you need. Cause I had to, uh, with it being an asset sale, they had to become employees of my company. So we had to do a bunch of new, mm-hmm. new hire paperwork, but it gave us a, a good half hour, 45 minutes at least to start to build that relationship. And, and I think they're genuinely, <laughs> excuse me, genuinely glad to see somebody younger coming in, knowing that again, I'm not going to change the name, not going to change the nature of the operations, not looking to get rid of anybody by any stretch of the imagination and I'm young, we'll be here daily and, and just want to grow the operation and, and do it with their input assistance and, and being mm-hmm. valuable team members going forward. So it was, a, it was kind of a breath of fresh air. And, and it was funny because I came back into the office afterwards. Like, yeah, I knew that was going to be the case. They, they just, they'd be <laughs> happy to see somebody new that was going to take care of them versus me grumping around here when I come in. So yeah, it was it's pretty funny how it worked out, but it, was, it worked out well. It worked out well. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Wesco Machine, but before we segue into that, now that you've been through the process, what would you tell a job shop owner who's looking to sell their shop? What are the perhaps the three most important things to be thinking about? Yeah, if you're actively looking to sell, I would say one we've already hit on, it's truthfully consider a broker and advisor in the process because they can make your life much easier over the span of the transaction. Um, and really, you know, you, it's a fine line to walk in terms of letting others in the team know, but it, it will help the process if there is somebody that you can confide with uh, to let them know that a transition is going to occur 
just because it can be another another source of support in terms of answering questions or uh, yes. when things seem to be going tough. You know, it's a, another yep. person to, to talk with outside of maybe a spouse or uh, somebody else outside the operation. If there's somebody else in the business, uh, it will just help that process internally and and can take a lot of stress off the plate. Um, I'd say the, the third thing is really think about who you want as a buyer too and what you want for the operation going forward. Um, because as I alluded to, there are many different buyers that are out there and it's a, the transaction has to work for all parties. Somebody could come with a, the biggest check possible, but uh, you know, there are owners that care about their team and there are owners that, that may just want to retire down in Cabo and, and not really care. So there are things to also ask of buyers and, and don't be afraid to push on certain things either because it, it is an important decision and it's, it's something that doesn't just stop once a deal is closed. That relationship does happen longer term. You know, even if it's somebody that's looking to get out of the business, uh, it can still take up to a year to, to fully transition out. Or if you want to stick around, it's even more important to know who you want as a partner and, and what skill sets or, or complementary features you want in that, that partner that you're bringing in. Absolutely. Very important. Tell us about Wesco Machine. You are in the Chicago, greater Chicago area? Yep. Yeah, so Wesco, been around since 96. Uh, but as I mentioned before, the a lot of the customers had been with the prior operation that was started before then and sold uh, do a lot for the chemical space here in the Joliet area, a lot of repair work uh, for those operations. And then another one of our larger accounts is an industrial equipment manufacturer where we just machine castings for them. So they'll have castings drop shipped to our place. Hmm. Uh, we machine them to print and then they kind of finish assemble and send out um, lower run prototype to call it a couple hundred parts. Um, but most of it is more brake fix, emergency repair, 24 hour service availability and OEM replacement to reverse engineering to build from print. But we don't do the design work yet. Uh, it's primarily we'll get a drawing in or a, a sample part sent back and kind of reverse engineer from there. Or it's just stuff that we've become the de facto OEM on over the course of 10, 20, 30 years because they no longer have the original drawing and we're just listed <laughs> as the OEM in the supplier catalog. So it works out pretty well. But uh, that's a great position to be in. So what types of processes do you offer in house? Yeah, we've got CNC and manual mills, lays, uh, and then drill presses, um, saw laser table, small, uh, small presses, and then MIG TIG welding. So do some fabrication work, but it's more in support of the machining. It's not the foot that we lead with. We lead with the machining side of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it can turn up to 34 inches OD. Um, and I've worked on kind of assemblies, fabrications up to 5,000 pounds to as small as a couple ounces. So it's yeah, mm -hmm. truly a, a job shop. And, and it's been pretty interesting seeing the stuff that, that comes into quote and the variety. And, and you'll look at a, a print one day for something that ends up coming out of a one inch square, almost <laughs> a one inch square cube to uh, the next print comes in. It's a, a 17 inch blind flange that weighs a lot more than that and takes a little bit more time to, to machine through. So been fun sure that's the beauty of a true job shop is the variety that comes in it's always a different puzzle every day and you are starting to do the quoting yeah starting to, to make that transition and i had done some quoting work for my dad in the past and it was easier because uh for them it's a lot more material based and then he had his basic formulas for the labor side of things so i could understand you know, how many inches can you weld per hour on assembly like this how many inches of weld are there total versus uh, how much sawing shearing mm -hmm. machining i'm learning is a, a little bit more nuanced because of uh, feeds and speeds of different material requirements and uh yeah how many times do you have to handle or change your work holding or mm -hmm. uh, how many different machines do you have to use so it's I think this one's going to take me a little bit longer to learn, but uh, it's something that I'm actively learning and, and looking forward to learning so that I can be even more value added to these guys here. And, uh, but yeah, it'll be a process. So do you have any favorite customer stories yet? Yeah, we've got a, a couple that have been really interesting for me. One of them, the chemical plants that we serve been with us longstanding, got a call 
right at the end of uh, February where they had a, a reactor that was down and we've actually made a bunch of nozzles and tube assemblies for some of the reactors all around the U S and they called and said, we're not getting the, the same production output from this thing. Uh, we're shutting it down this afternoon. Need you to come down and inspect a few things, but you have to be ready to start work 6am Friday morning, work on site until the whole process is complete. Will you do that? It's like, yes, we will be down there. <laughs> and for me, it was the, the first time really being outside of their, their supplies warehouse, but going into one of the actual production buildings, uh, climbing up the, the three flights of stairs to the top of this thing. And uh, we just had to get in and start honing out tubes and making sure everything fit within uh, 2000s, basically. Mm. Uh, so that one was pretty fun just because it was, came out of nowhere. They say jump, we say how high. And then uh, two weeks later, another chemical plant called on a Wednesday afternoon needed tubes for a heat exchanger, tube plugs for a heat exchanger that they had just inspected and found some issues with mm. a very similar story where it's like, I don't care where you get this material, what it's going to cost. We just need these things here tomorrow by end of day. So I'll send us in a rat race to find some metric round and some uh, <laughs> metric round three sixteen stainless, which proved to be much harder than I expected. And then some grade two titanium, which proved to be easier than I expected. Uh, but had stuff hot shotted, worked through uh, a good chunk of the night, dropped them off mm-hmm. the next morning, and, and they were pretty happy with it. So it's, yeah, they're those two. And um, just brought on a new customer two weeks ago, sent us a, a draw bar to quote, something relatively simple. So we get that process done. And as soon as uh, it gets dropped off, get a call two hours later. And it's like, ah, uh, we, we ran into a problem here. There's supposed to be two on this order. We didn't realize <laughs> the next one. We'll get the PO sent down right away. So that was another one where I had the material and turned it, dropped it off next morning at, at 8 a.m. at his place. So yeah, it's been, that's where the job shop side is fun. It's uh, never, never a dull moment. Or if there is, it's your own fault for, for not being out pounding enough pavement. I'm learning. Yeah. So, you're a young guy, and that's part of the plan is this is your, your home for quite a while. Where do you see your business in 10 years? What, what's your goal as a business owner now? <laughs> yeah, the, uh, that one changes by the month almost because uh, I got asked that question by the guys kind of week one and me not really knowing what, what it was. Like, uh, you know, I'd love to be north of 10 million, 50 million would be great. We'll do a few acquisitions here, there, <laughs> tuck them in. I like to grow. We'll, we'll have fun with this. And, and now it's, I, I'm learning there's a little bit harder than I expected and, and really starting to appreciate the nuances of the trade, uh, the value that we truly provide to our customers. And I'm learning that really uh, I'd much rather be a value add partner to our customers than just a big shop. So I'd like to bring on another handful of customers every year that are more of these chemical plants, food processing plants, industrial equipment manufacturers or, or consumer products manufacturers that have that critical nature to their business as well and appreciate the 24-hour service that we can provide because I think genuinely my guys appreciate it too. They understand that they're keeping these places online and keeping them right. on. Um, and it's just more exciting work too than having a, a ton of CNCs lined up that are all automated and everybody's just pushing go and sitting back and measuring. Um, but I do want to bring in some of that production aspect to just help level out some of the peaks and valleys. So trying to find a handful of either larger machine shops or additional industrial equipment manufacturers that have longer parts runs where maybe we can get a blanket PO for a year and kind of stock, you know, make the stock and, and fill that out. So you know, within 10 years, uh, I'd say at this point, I'd be happy if we were north of 5 million. Because um, at first, me just being a, more of a type A aggressive growth type person, I wanted to, to shoot for the stars, but I'm wondering that there's value in patience. And uh, there are a lot of paths that can be gone down day one, and I probably made that mistake of going down a couple too many. Um, and in hindsight, would have slowed the process down and just make sure that I really understood the operations before setting sail on a few of these things. So it's, yeah, my, my vision has scaled back dramatically from week one, I can say, but still not, not much. Well, that's part of being an entrepreneur. You get new information and you have to evaluate where you are at the moment. Does it still make sense or yeah. do you need to change course? Yep. So I think it's time to start wrapping up, but I do have a question. I looked on your LinkedIn page and you've been active with Miami University since you graduated. And 
by the way, for our audience, Miami University is not in Florida. It's in Ohio. <laughs> so, yeah, as we like to say, Miami University was found before Florida was even a state. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, but you've been doing a lot of things with the school since you graduated. Can you share yeah. some of those? Or, and what? Yeah, a couple of things. Again, I was pretty active on campus. Uh, was the head of a couple of different groups. One, they had a, a student-run credit union, which there are only two of in the nation. The other one's George Washington. So it was pretty interesting to be uh, the head of a, a million-dollar credit union that was completely student-run. We had mm. another advisor in there that provided that long-term continuity, but that had a lot of perspective on the financial system pretty quickly and then also ran the, the investment banking club. So was pretty involved uh, extracurricularly as well as with the business school and after graduation, joined the board of the credit union for a longer period of time just to provide some of the financial modeling assistance, some of the longer-term continuity assistance. But a few years after graduating, the business school had started a, an advisory council and was fortunate enough to be asked uh, to join that. It was a young professional advisory council specifically where they were looking to bring in a series of more recent alumni just to provide some perspective on the coursework that they were looking to bring in or maybe change over the next few years, uh, providing insight as to what the current hiring environment might be, um, and just as well as to, to keep younger alumni engaged. So that was a, a fun assignment as well in terms of spending more time with professors and students and, and getting back to campus a couple times a year to, to work with a, a group of like-minded individuals that were hoping to drive the business school forward. So it's, uh, I'm, uh, as we call it, a Miami merger. Uh, my wife went there. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law went there. My younger brother went there. My younger sister-in-law went there and is dating a Miami guy too. So it's, uh, it was a fun place and, and provided a, a lot of opportunity for me too. So it was a, a great learning experience, great environment, and, and something I was happy to give back to and, and try to stay involved with. Well, I think with the content that you have shared today, as well on the finance side of the the job shops and the acquisition, the buy and the sell, you're certainly contributing a lot to the job shop community. So I, I really appreciate that. Is there anything else you would like to put out there before we go? I think in, in general, I'm pretty wide open to networking. And, and at this point, being new into the machine shop space, I love making connections with other owners that are, either have gone through some of this and, and can opine on it, but equally willing to you know, kind of trade information and, and help out with anything that they may be looking at from a succession plan longer term or just uh, general business, uh, the financial side of it or the accounting side of it or the operation side of it. It's, I'm, uh, I love getting to know people, their stories, their operations. And, and that was part of the reason that I got in the investment banking space day one was to see a lot of different operations, a lot of different management styles, a lot of different uh, industry models. And, and I still enjoy that side of learning as well. So if anybody is, is interested in connecting, more than happy to, to share and keep being a, a value-added resource, hopefully to the, the machining community going forward. Where can customers get more information about Wesco Machine if they want to engage with you folks? Do you have a website, yeah. Facebook? Yeah, page? potential customers. Uh, we've got website www.wescomachine.us. And Wesco is W-E-S as in Sam, C as in Charlie, O as in Oscar, not Westco, as uh, it sometimes gets <laughs> confused with. Uh, so we've got the website and then a LinkedIn page if you search for Wesco Machine and Tool Inc. in Chicago. You can find us there. And then I'm also on LinkedIn uh, and Twitter, Joel Niekamp, J-O-E-L-N-I-E-K-A-M as in Mary, P as in Paul. Well, again, this was so interesting. I learned a lot and it's always refreshing to engage with a young entrepreneur like yourself who is tackling and and I guess the, in my mind, as you said, there's a lot of owners who are retiring or looking to exit their businesses. But what a, the manufacturing community, the job shop community really needs is people with your skill set to come in and bring the job shop community into the 21st century. So there's a lot of great raw talent out here in uh, I'm excited. I think that the uh, in 10 years, it'll be 
super to have another conversation with you because I'm just very confident that you and your team are going to be able to make a dent in custom manufacturing. I I appreciate all of it, Jay, and and appreciate the invite. And and just one last point to a comment you made there. It's been interesting. I've had a couple guys come in from other shops recently uh, where they're just bringing parts over and we're helping them out. And then there have been two specifically that said that they interviewed here a couple of years ago, but part of their reason and not accepting an offer was they just weren't sure of the long-term prospects. And I never really thought about that, but you know, they followed up by saying, if we would have known that there is another younger guy that was going to come in and take it over, probably would have reconsidered that. So I'm hoping that's part of what will help us as a, a company, you know, bring in some younger talent and, and retain them longer term. I'm going to try to use that as a, uh, a competitive strategy to, to do so. Sure. But yeah, I'm hoping to bring more excitement back to the trades and, and promote it throughout um, my high school, my university, and, and even the local communities here in, in the Chicagoland area. Yeah. Custom part manufacturing is is sexy. So uh, <laughs> we just got to get the message out, right? <laughs> yeah. well, I'm out there with the bullhorn as much as you are. So uh, we'll see what we can do here. Super. Well, that's it for another episode of the Job Shop Show. Thanks for listening and keep those spindles turning and those presses cranking. Thanks, Joel. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it. Thank you.